Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. Dialogue. Dialoguejournal.com. Dialogue. Dialogue journal. Dialogue. Dialogue. It's the 50th anniversary of Dialogue. Hello, and welcome to the Dialogue podcast. I'm Morris Thurston, a member of the Dialogue Board of Directors, and tonight we're pleased to have Dr. Jared Hickman, assistant professor in the English department of John Hopkins University, who will speak to us about approaches to reading the Book of Mormon. We were interested in hearing from Jared because of an article he authored titled The Book of Mormon as Amerindian Apocalypse, which was published in American Literature, the premier journal in its field. It's not that common for an LDS scholar to have an article on a Mormon subject published in a religious mainline journal, and I think you'll find his insights most interesting. On a different subject, do you know that 2016 marks the 50th year of Dialogue's existence? Please circle September 30th on your calendar, because on that date we'll be having a spectacular 50th birthday celebration, with lots of educational and fun activities planned. You'll be hearing more about it in the coming months. If you're anywhere near Salt Lake City or can manage to be there on that date, you won't want to miss it. We hope you'll also consider a contribution to Dialogue, especially this year. Contributions from our listeners and subscribers help keep the journal alive and thriving. And I'd like to mention that we've just published our first issue under the direction of our new editor, Boyd Peterson, and it has some great articles you'll want to read. This podcast is a recording of a presentation Jared Hickman gave to the Miller-Eccles Study Group in Orange County, California on April 15, 2016. The next voice you'll hear will be my wife, Dawn, who introduced Jared. I'd like to introduce Jared now. Uh, Dr. Jared Hickman was born in Southern California in Los Angeles, but he grew up in Utah. He attended Bowdoin College in Maine, did his graduate work at Harvard. He lives in Baltimore with his three children, two boys and a girl, and his wife, who he met when he was 10. (laughs) His wife is Amy Evans Hickman, whose name may be familiar to many of you because she has been uh, recently the editor-in-chief of Exponent 2. He teaches what he calls the fusty musty stuff. I found that on the internet. (laughs) Excuse me, at John Hopkins University in the English department. But the focus of his historical research considers the intersection of literature, religion, and race in the United States and the Atlantic world from the colonial period through the 19th century. He's the author of the forthcoming book to be published by Oxford Press called Black Prometheus, Race and Radicalism in the Age of Atlantic Slavery, which is based on his Ph.D. dissertation. Tonight's presentation takes on the topic of Indians in the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon is Amerindian Apocalypse. is based on an essay that was published in the literary journal American Literature. I'll turn the time now over to Dr. Hickman. Thank you so much uh, for that introduction, Don. Um, 
You did your homework. That was a yeah. You actually sleuthed around and found out some some tidbits about me. So, and、uh, I'm just so grateful for the invitation from、uh, this group、um, for to to Morris and Janet and, and everybody anybody else who was involved in、uh, in helping to. Arrange this. I'm、um, uh, very grateful to be here and hope that yeah, I'll have、um, something of of interest、um, to say to to all of you tonight. I consider myself to be the a member of the the first Book of Mormon generation. Right,、I、was born in 1977. Right, right before President Benson really started placing the Book of Mormon at the center. Right of Of Mormon belief and practice, and my very devout parents were、uh, among those who took very seriously this advice from the prophet. And so I grew up in a home where you know every morning we got up early and we read the Book of Mormon together, and it was just a loop. You know, forget the other standard works, right? We just read the Book of Mormon. Maybe some of you can relate to this experience. Read the Book of Mormon. And you finish it, and then you just pick it up and you start doing it、um, again and again. So I have this strange sort of lifelong relationship to this book that's、uh, been pretty intense for as long as I can remember. And it's a, a it's a book like a uh,、um, that uh, you know. There's certain books. Maybe you've had this experience, right? That you you always feel are a step ahead of you. Right, they always outsmarting you, right? And just when you think you've got it figured out,、um, then you realize there's ah,、oh, there's this additional wrinkle, this additional dimension, right, that you haven't yet accounted for, and so you go back and you try to figure that out. So、um, I just keep on keeping on with this book as I have, you know, from the time that for as long as I can remember, as I said, and I'm always finding、um, new things. In it、um, and、uh, new challenges to my previous readings of it. So anything I have to say about the Book of Mormon, I feel like the 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 true the real title uh, uh, should always be is some perennial preliminary ramblings on the Book of Mormon. Because I know that you know probably after all your brilliant questions in the Q and A, I will be. Realizing that I'm completely wrong about everything that I ever thought about the Book of Mormon, and have to have to go back to square one. So I've sort of entitled my、uh, my real title for my remarks、uh, today is "Learning to Read with the Book of Mormon." And let me just lay out sort of the different the the, the different senses in which I mean that because I'm an English professor, so there's wordplay bound to be involved, right? So,、uh, so the first part of the talk, thinking about learning to read with the, the Book of Mormon, I will, I'm afraid, if you'll indulge me, treat you to a sort of an autobiographical tale of、uh, of how this sort of lifelong engagement with the the Book of Mormon that I just alluded to really sort of turned me into an English professor. This is my claim, right? Tur- which is to say, a professional reader, right? That's what an English professor is, right? In some sense. So there'll be a little bit about、uh, how I learned to read, both basically and ultimately professionally, with the Book of Mormon.、Uh, after that,、uh, we'll turn to sort of a brief discussion of contemporary debates about、uh, scholarly reading practices afforded me by the professional training in reading, to which I'm claiming the Book of Mormon ushered me, that might enable us to learn to read with the Book of Mormon in a more precise sense. And specifically here, what I mean is engaging in the experiment of 
suspending the looming historicity question, right, in order to read the Book of Mormon by its own lights, as it were. That is, not just reading the Book of Mormon with this or that imperative or agenda, but reading with the Book of Mormon as it suggests it wants to be read, right? So reading with the Book of Mormon, reading with the grain of the Book of Mormon, in the grain of the Book of Mormon, trying to, to, to get a sense of, you know, what information it provides about how it wants to be read, right? How it, how it instructs its readers to, uh, to regard it and to, uh, and to interpret it. From there, uh, I want to turn to uh, an exploration of how the manner in which the Book of Mormon, as a result of its particular form, asks to be read, uh, the manner in which the Book of Mormon, as a result of its particular form, asks to be read, invites us to rethink the ways in which we can and ought to read not only it, but Scripture more generally. Right? So I think that uh, I hope to show is that the Book of Mormon, because of the way that it is constituted, right, the particular form that it takes, that it actually has built into it, as it were, um, a, a kind of statement about what Scripture is and how one ought to approach Scripture in order to be able to, um, uh, to pull sort of spiritual meaning out of it. And then uh, finally, um, I want to just do a sort of an exemplification um, of one reading practice that the Book of Mormon, it seems to me, calls for. The implications of which might seem surprising, I think, um, given the church's past and present. But nonetheless, I'm going to claim uh, a reading practice that our eponymous scripture pushes us, I think, at least to consider and to, uh, to entertain. So seeing uh, exactly where this project of reading with the Book of Mormon um, attending to the, the, the specificities of its form, I think it, it may lead us to some, some, some interesting and surprising places. And I just want to sort of follow that all the way and see, see where it might take us. So part one, the autobiographical tale, learning to read with the Book of Mormon. Uh, I quite literally learned to read with, with the Book of Mormon. Um, uh, it's one of the first really challenging books that I read, right? And I remember from the time I was very young wrestling with it, right? Uh, you know, I did pretty good with all the, you know, the, 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 the little sort of board books and little Dick and Jane books along the way, right, that my grandmother was always supplying me with, right? She was, you know, determined that I was going to be a brilliant scholar. She was a school teacher. And uh, so she had designs on me from the, from the beginning. I managed to get through those pretty well. But then here was this book that had, was you know, presented to me as the most important of all books. And uh, I was a reader and I wanted to read. And uh, uh, so I have vivid memories, right, of, of you know, leafing through those feathery pages, right, of my parents' scriptures as a child, right, and coming across all of these strange words and strange formulations and strange grammar, right? And trying, but knowing that it was important and I needed to do it and I was, I was, um, uh, I was gonna be, uh, I was gonna be better for it if I just pushed on through. So, um, as I said, this has just been a, 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 a part of my entire life. So I have, so I've literally learned to read with the Book of Mormon in many ways. My uh, very ambitious um, parents as well instituted in our, in our home this Sunday gospel study program, right, where we had every Sunday, uh, this is starting when I was about 
I don't know, eight or nine, maybe, um, we had to do two hours of independent gospel study. And I remember my, my father, he, uh, he gave me this, you know, this leather binder, right, from work, and he handed this over to me, and he said, you know, I want you to, every week, you know, to do uh, these two hours of gospel study, you're going to write up a, you're going to use the topical guide, right, pick a topic, you know, go read all the scriptures, you know, gather your thoughts, and then you're going to punch some holes in the paper, and you're going to put them in this binder. And I still have that 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 binder that I wrote gospel study in giant letters with like one of those silver metallic pens on the letter, right? Uh, so um, I don't, uh, yeah, I don't think that's what he had in mind, but um, I, I, I recall he was always sort of profoundly disappointed in uh, that the, the topic to which I gravitated was primarily the beasts of Revelation. I was really interested in, in, in the beasts of, of, of Revelation. And every week, I was like, well, you know what? I think I need to just read some more about those really cool beasts, right? They're really interesting. I was already getting into fantasy literature and everything, so that was the angle from which I was, I was like, if I got to do this right, then let's... You know, then uh, let's let's work on the beasts of Revelation. But anyway, uh, primarily what happened when I wasn't studying the, the beasts of Revelation was the kind of reading, right, that I was doing, right, by way of the topical guide was reading primarily for doctrinal content. Um, reading, you know, picking a topic like repentance and going and reading all the scriptures on repentance and um, sort of coming to the scriptures as this repository of truths, right, that it's... That um, the text itself was just sort of a container, right, for these eternal truths. And what you did when you read scriptures, you went and you just kind of plucked those out and uh, you, you harmonized them and synthesized them um, in some way. Again, I'm, I'm sure uh, many of you can relate. So I literally, literally learned to read, right, um, with the Book of Mormon. That was the, the first sort of reading practice, right? Um, that I developed uh, with the Book of Mormon. And then the next one was the sort of a certain kind of reading for doctrinal content. As I got older and uh, my sort of scholarly inclinations only became uh, became clearer, I developed a greater awareness of this thing called the, the historicity question and realizing that, oh, you know, there's actually a, a lot of people, in fact, most of the people in the world, right, who don't think this is what I've been taught that it is, right? And I happened to uh, to, to grow up in a, a, a ward, uh, a prominent member of which was Jack Welch, right, who was sort of in his farm's heyday um, at that time. And uh, I was very good friends with his daughter, and um, so uh, I recall, you know, I was, uh, it was when he was in the midst of writing that book about King Benjamin's speech that some of you may know, that really massive kind of commentary on King Benjamin's speech. And uh, I and my friends were frequently invited over, right, to just go sit around the Welch's sort of dining room table and, and, uh, and, and Brother Welch would sort of hold forth to us about the intricacies of King Benjamin's speech. So what came out of that uh, relationship, right, and, and eventually um, uh, Brother Welch, as I, uh, as I still think of him, um, he actually hired me to do some research for him when I got into college, and when I got back from my mission, I had this very brief window in which I was actually a farms employee when it was still out on the edge of the BYU campus in those little houses, 
and, and so that, in, in the course of that experience, a new reading practice in relation to the Book of Mormon developed, which was reading for evidence of ancient content, right, specifically. I remember working really hard for him on Alma 5 and seeing if there was a connection to the Day of Atonement, right, and how that might be related to the ritual calendar because he thought that King Benjamin's speech was also, you know, a, a Day of Atonement, uh, uh, a Day of Atonement um, uh, 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 ritual was part of that part of that ritual. So we went for sort of reading for, doc, for for doctrinal content, sort of in a very sort of uh, basic sense, to to reading very specifically for evidence of ancient ancient content um, of some kind. Um, as I you know moved on to to, to college. I, and really started sort of gravitating in the direction of 19th century American literature and, um, and history, a new reading practice sort of um, came along and uh, in relation to the Book of Mormon, which was as I became better informed about what was going on in the United States in the 19th century, and as, you know, all this time, you know, always faithfully reading my Book of Mormon, right, as I was doing this, it was like, oh, wow. A lot of things in here sound like the things I've been learning about the Second Great Awakening and this or that class, right? Or, yeah, all that stuff about secret combinations, right? Yeah, um, you know, anti-Masonry in the, in the early 19th century. I, I, it sounds an awful lot like that. And uh, so uh, I found myself, yeah, just sort of because uh, as a result of this sort of specific tra- trajectory, uh, confronted, right, with this this basic question that I think, yeah, most people who spend a lot of time with the Book of Mormon try to think about these things, right, sort of come to, right? Uh, and, and because of its sort of, its, its strange reception history, the Book of Mormon, right, the fact that the moment it comes into the world, right, there's a set of claims for it as an ancient text, and then there's a, a much larger sort of set of, uh, of assumptions about it being um, a patently modern text, patently of its very specific moment, going back to Alexander Campbell's devastating sort of review of it. Because of that, what I, what I want to suggest is that the Book of Mormon is, becomes, uh, and certainly became for me, an ideal set, uh, text for learning to read in an even more profound sense, right? Because the Book of Mormon, I, I think, forces you to ask yourself methodological questions about reading. How do we read? What are we doing when we're reading? What are we reading for, right? Uh, My own sort of history with the book, I've gone through these various phases of reading, of these very different reading practices in relation to it, and I got to a certain point where suddenly it's sort of the big meta question, right, that comes to you, which is like, what, what is reading, what am I even doing when I'm reading? Right? Like, what, what is one trying to accomplish when one is reading? What should I be looking for? Right? What should I be paying attention to? Are there fundamentally different religious and secular modes of reading? Are there incommensurable modes of, of reading? What are the premises of these different modes of reading if they, if they exist? So this is all to say, right, that I genuinely, I consider my pursuit of a career as a professional literary critic to be, in many ways, the logical outcome of my lifelong engagement with the, the, the Book of Mormon. I didn't just literally learn to read with the Book of Mormon. I learned with the Book of Mormon to read reflexively and to obsessively reflect on reading practices in particular ways. That you know is one way of marking the distinction between professional and non-professional readers, right? So now let me, uh, if I can... 
uh, part two here, sort of introduce the autobiographical part portion is over. Thanks for indulging me. Let me introduce you to an, an, an ongoing debate among professional readers that has inspired me to reread the Book of Mormon in ways that have opened up the text for me and also, I think, revealed the text's value for theorizing and historicizing reading itself, <laughs> the, way, the, the way that reading happens and sort of what the way that different sort of theories and practices of reading sort of operate um, uh, in different historical moments. In their 2009 um, introductory manifesto to a special issue of the journal Representations, Stephen Best and Sharon Marcus defined something they called surface reading over and against an entrenched academic reading practice known as symptomatic reading. Right? So surface reading, that's the thing that they're kind of pushing, and they're doing so by way of contrast to this thing called symptomatic reading. Right? Uh, I'm going to uh, try to sort of give you a sense of sort of what these two terms mean and, and see how they might uh, be useful in thinking about uh, how to approach the Book of Mormon. Uh, symptomatic reading was fostered by the sort of mid-20th century cross-pollination of Marxism and psychoanalysis. And it understands texts to possess what the critic Frederick Jameson called a political unconscious, right? So there's the fusion of sort of the Marxism, you know, the, 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 the focus on the political, right? And psychoanalysis, this idea of the, the unconscious, right? So all texts have a political unconscious, right? Which is to say, simply, a set of common sense assumptions about sociopolitical reality by which every text is structured without necessarily recognizing it. That is, these assumptions are, you know, to use the psychoanalytic language, repressed in some way. Really, I mean, the, maybe the, the most direct way to think about this, right, is to just unpack the metaphor of in, in symptomatic reading. What's a symptom, right? A symptom, right, is um, some sign, some signal of illness, right, and what a doctor does, right, is you try to read the symptoms in order to diagnose, right, the problem that is causing those symptoms, right? So we just sort of think about what that analogy would mean in this particular case. What it mean, what it, what it, what it amounts to, right, is a, a, a reading practice, right, in which you're coming at a text, you're seeing it as sick in some way, right, as ill in some way, as, hide, as, um, as having sort of causes that are, um, as having deep causes that you have to somehow trace out, right, but that are hidden or, or obscured. And this becomes the model, right, for uh, a certain kind of reading practice. I mean, the, the, again, maybe even, uh, even a, a quicker way to think about this is uh, just to think about the, the ready-to-handness of, you know, any joke about Freudian psychoanalysis, right? That, that basically you can figure out anything by just asking somebody about their relationship with their mother, right? <laughs> so this, this is the joke, right? So this, this idea that all, all behavior, all phenomena are explicable by these sort of occult causes, um, and you're looking for the symptoms in order to be able to figure out what's the, what's the cause beneath it. So in this model of symptomatic reading, right, the surface of the text is actually a veneer beneath which brew the particular historical forces 
that are what are really animating that text. Uh, and so the text exhibits telltale symptoms of the workings of those historical forces by in its very repression of them, right? It's trying to it's 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 unconscious of these things and the form that the text takes um, uh, in in sort of hiding those things and sort of tamping them down, something is actually revealed if you're the right kind of critic, right? If you're acute enough, right? So um, so strangely, in a way, one form that this kind of reading practice, symptomatic reading practice, takes, right, is that absence itself becomes full of significance, right? So what's not there is as interesting as what's actually there because that's the thing that the text can't say, right, in some way. It's the thing that it's unconscious of or that it's consciously sort of trying not to say, right? And that's, that's your opening, right, as a symptomatic reader to try to figure, to, to, to figure out what's the, yeah, what's the, um, you know, for a Marxist crit- critic, you know, what's the, the sort of underlying material relations that are actually sort of driving this thing or what's the what's the ideology, the ambient ideology, right? That's sort of making this thing go. That's supplying its basic terms. So, in this conception, as Best and Marcus gloss it, quote, interpretation is unmasking. Meaning is the difference between surface and depth, and the critic restores to the surface the history that the text represses. Right. That's what it. That's the job of the critic. Right. From the from the perspective of symptomatic reading. So the text is fundamentally characterized by lack, by absence, by repression, and the critic assumes the heroic posture of, quote, resting meaning from, the, from a resisting text or inserting it into a lifeless one. So this is symptomatic reading. So Vested Marcus in this sort of manifesto say, we want to do this other thing called surface reading, right? And so, um, uh, so here's the sort of the contrast, right, that unfolds from there. Uh, so surface reading involves accepting texts, deferring to texts, uh, instead of attempting to master them, right, or to uh, or use them as objects. Uh, and it refuses, uh, Best and Marcus say, the depth model of truth, which dismisses surfaces as inessential and deceptive, right? So for the symptomatic reader, what's right there on the surface is not the thing that you're after. That's, that's, that's you know, that's, that's the ploy, right? And you have to pierce through sort of the, uh, the surface in order to find out what's really going on. The surface reader, by contrast, is saying, no, let's, let's just stay for a while at least on the surface and see just how much is there before we just dive, dive, uh, dive right in. So uh, one expression of, uh, of, of this sort of stance, this surface reading stance, would be a, a sort of a redefinition of the, the, the literary critic's task as one of rigorously attentive description. Right, that that first and foremost is your job as a literary critic. It's not to presume that you know you have the uh, you have the vision to be able to see through the text in order to um, to uncover the truth of it. It's that no, I'm just gonna I'm gonna stay on the surface here and just try to to map it right and and just sort of make sense of uh, um, of of what it is obviously and overtly doing. Uh, as Besson and Marcus put it, this, quote, this focus assumes that texts can reveal their own truths because texts mediate themselves. What we think theory brings to texts, form, structure, meaning, is already present in them. 
Uh, description sees no need to translate the text into a theoretical or a historical meta-language in order to make the text meaningful. The purpose of criticism is thus a relatively modest one, to indicate what the text says about itself. Here, depth is not to be found outside the text or beneath its surface, as its context or its horizon, its unconscious or its history. Rather, depth is continuous with surface and is thus an effective imminence. Close quote. With, with those two models in play, are we good on that? We feel like we, we got it pretty well? Okay. Much of Book of Mormon criticism uh, to date has proceeded under the aegis of a rather crude and straightforward kind of symptomatic reading. So um, the, the sort of ungainly text of Joseph Smith's 19th century translation of an ancient record is read diagnostically for symptoms either of its alleged antiquity or its presumptive modernity. In this scheme, the locus of truth lies in the settling of the historicity question, and the text seems to exist primarily as a springboard for virtuosic readings of hero critics, whether Jack Welch, Brother Welch, or Dan Vogel, right, who reveal the true nature, right, of the obscure text which is to say, it's provenance, like where does it actually come from, right? So my question then today, since this is, I think, fair to say, at least in, at least in kind of, yeah, we'll say sort of scholarly or academic or quasi-academic reading of the, of the Book of Mormon, uh, this kind of symptomatic reading model has sort of dominated, right, until quite recently. So then the question for us, right, is what would a committed surface reading of the Book of Mormon look like? What would it yield, right? So for one, and I'll just throw this out, out here, and we can talk about it more in the Q&A if you're interested, it might radically reframe the historicity question itself. If we understand our task as, to go back to Best and Marcus, as indicating what the text says about itself, it becomes possible to contemplate that the Book of Mormon actually never presents itself exactly as an ancient historical text. That is, as a text composed within and thus entirely conditioned by a limited spatio-temporal context, right? So rather, we start to think about it, right? It quite candidly presents itself from start to finish as a text that is not conventionally bound by space-time. Uh, the Book of Mormon's anachronism, its sort of time-warping, its time-bending, is unembarrassedly integral to the text. It's right out there front and center for us if we're if we're if we're just paying attention, I think. Uh, it's a it's it's actually a quite remarkably assured and comprehensive prolepsis, right? Fancy word for just saying, you know, a text that is always sort of looking forward, right, and writing as writing as though from the standpoint of the future. So just consider this, right? Just a few things to, uh, pieces of evidence to make this small point about one way, you know, one benefit maybe of just trying to do a surface reading of the text. The book's point of departure is Lehi's visionary apprehension of the imminent Babylonian captivity, right? This is First Nephi chapter one, right? First chapter of the book. This is revealed to him in the pages of a book, right? That is given to him by 12 angelic figures who we are told appear following, quote, one descending out of the midst of heaven whose luster was above that of the sun at noonday. In other words, Lehi is warned of the Babylonian captivity about 13 years before it happens 
by way of a book given to him by men, these are obviously Jesus' apostles, right, who will not be born for another 600 years. This is chapter one, right, of the book, right? So uh, this is simply to say that the Book of Mormon is a wormhole right from the get-go, right? Chapter one, it's that we already have this weird kind of time-warping thing happening. More, just more evidence, just quickly on the fly here. Consider, right, by the end of the 32nd of 239 total chapters, and only 40 or so years into its 1,000-year main narrative, if you're doing the math right, about an eighth of the way into the text, and about a 25th of the way into the time span of its main narrative, the narrators of the Book of Mormon can already do the following things. One, worship Jesus Christ by name, right? Which includes foreknowledge of his birth by a virgin, baptism, crucifixion, and resurrection, and a thoroughly developed Christian soteriology to boot, right? A conception of how Jesus is, quote, the savior of the world. Two, they can anticipate their own extinction at the hands of their brethren, the Lamanites, 1,000 years later, around 420 CE, thereby spoiling the narrative, right? For that's how it inevitably ends. And three, they can foresee the eventual recovery of their record 2,500 years later by a seer named Joseph, uh, an event that is imagined as transforming 19th century America. So uh, the Book of Mormon is a sustained exercise in, to borrow a phrase from Abinadi, speaking of things to come as though they had already come. And this formal feature, uh, apart from what it might suggest about Book of Mormon authorship, defines the text, right? So regardless of what conclusions one draws for how is it like this, right? This is what it is, right? From start to finish. It's got this really, this really trippy sense of temporality, right, um, uh, built into it. The other, you know, just kind of fun piece of evidence that I haven't mentioned is the first time that the name Christ appears in the narrative, and it's in um, second, uh, it's in second Nephi 9, I think, it's Jacob discoursing, it's, it's an afterthought. It's in this little parenthetical, right, where <laughs> Jacob's just launching into sort of his account of the you know, what we call the plan of salvation, right? And, uh, and he comes to the part of talking about this, redeem, this redeemer figure, and then there's parenthesis, and it's like, whose name shall be Christ, which the angel told me the night before, right? And then close parenthesis, right? So it, the, the first time Christ's name appears, it, it in and of itself has this kind of really interesting kind of um, sort of anachronistic kind of quality where he's here talking about the salvation of the world, and he just happens to drop the name, and then he's like, oh yeah, um, I gotta account for how I know that name. Oh, the angel told me last night that that's gonna be the name of this, this redeemer, right? So if you want to in the Q&A, we can talk more about that. Uh, so that's one thing I think that, that uh, is on offer by a committed surface reading of the Book of Mormon. Maybe it helps us to get ourselves out of this like bad hermeneutical dualism of is it ancient, is it modern, is it ancient, is it modern. Maybe it itself is telling us that it's something quite different and it's asking to be sort of apprehended in a different, in a different way. It certainly doesn't, it doesn't solve the historicity question. I'm not pretending that it does, but it might give us a different way of looking at it, right, and thinking about what the Book of Mormon is. Um, but for now, let me return to the question of, let me turn to the question, rather, not return, um, of narrative, narrative point of view, voice, and structure in the Book of Mormon to illustrate, I think, the, 
where a, a committed surface reading of the Book of Mormon might, might take us. So I regularly teach the Book of Mormon in a course called American Bibles uh, that examines 19th century texts that were biblical in their inspirations, aspirations, and often proportions. Um, Moby Dick um, is one, the Book of Mormon. So one of the things we talk about in this course is how the Book of Mormon interacted with the intensely Bible-focused culture of the early 19th century United States. Uh, American Protestants in the era of the Book of Mormon's publication went all in on the Bible, as perhaps no group before ever had. They took Martin Luther's Reformation doctrine of sola scriptura, by scripture alone, to a whole new level. Uh, many American Protestants, especially those swept up in the evangelical revivals that Joseph Smith describes in his personal history, came to believe that the Bible was the literal word of God, that every direction contained in its pages was applicable to all men at all times. Right? That's a quote, quote from, the, uh, from the period, right? And that the Bible was sufficiently legible that any person, regardless of his or her learning, was capable of discerning those directions and living his or her life accordingly in the confidence that he or she was good with God, so to speak. Many American Protestant traditions today maintain these positions or variations thereof, as I'm sure uh, many of you know, uh, maybe from personal experience. Yeah, so there's that point, sorry. So now I want to suggest that one of the reasons that American Protestants felt empowered to read the Bible as a text whose meanings were self-evident and whose uh, words were absolutely binding is the way the biblical narrative typically works. Literary critics see in the most ancient portions of the Bible an especially powerful formal innovation, namely what we come call a third-person omniscient voice. So, uh, and don't tell the English professor that you don't know what that is. You remember from your English classes, right? So here's a quick refresher on the off, off, off chance that you've forgotten, right? So in a, in a narrative written from a third-person perspective, the characters in the story are viewed entirely from without, referred to by the pronouns he, she, they. Uh, if the narrative point of view is further an omniscient one, then the narrator of the story has total access to the thoughts and feelings of all of the characters and really everything else about the narrative world, right? Such a narrative voice often sounds matter-of-fact, and seems authoritative. Uh, for the reader, it can be easy to trust such a knowing voice that seems to sort of float impersonally above the events, however dramatic, that are related. Take the first few verses of Genesis as an example, right? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. These words, about nothing less than the creation of the world, come at us from nowhere. Uh, it's not stated by whom, or whence, or why this information is relayed. And these words may be compelling in part precisely because they seem to come at us from nowhere, from something like the very formless void mentioned in these verses. One might even see an analogy between the way God is depicted as creating the world by simply stating that he wishes it to be, and the way the narration works here, right? Bringing a coherent narrative world into being through the abrupt assertion of this no-nonsense, impersonal point of view. So the point is, even though the subject matter is about as grandiose as one can imagine, right, the creation of the world, 
the manner in which the events are narrated is so forceful and forthright as perhaps to foreclose our asking any questions about who, when, where, and why, right? So now compare this to the first few verses of the Book of Mormon. I, Nephi, having been born of goodly parents, therefore I was taught somewhat in all the learning of my father, and having seen many afflictions in the course of my days, nevertheless, having been highly favored of the Lord in all, all my days, yea, having had a great knowledge of the goodness and mysteries of God, therefore I make a record of my proceedings in my days. Right? So what's different about the narrative voice here? Uh, this is a narrative written from a first-person rather than a third-person point of view, right? We are confronted with Nephi's I right from the get-go. The pronouns I and my appear eight times in this single verse, right? So the reader is placed inside Nephi's perspective, right, rather than privileged to stand outside it with an omniscient narrator. So whereas in the Genesis passage, any trace of the author or narrator is rigorously effaced, here we are bombarded with particulars about the individual, Nephi, who has written and or narrated what we are reading, right? So we know precisely where this story is coming from. So what do we do with this striking difference, right? What is different, um, or should be different, about reading a scripture written in a magisterial third-person perspective that strikes such an authoritative posture as to sort of presuppose readerly confidence, right? Um, consequently causing some to hear it as the literal word of God, as opposed to reading a scripture written from an unabashed first-person perspective that both openly admits and also not so openly reveals its human limitations. Right? So at the time the Book of Mormon came forth in 1830, American Protestants were struggling with what the historian David Holland, uh, Elder Holland's son, of course, um, calls the problem of revelatory particularity. Uh, what does he mean by this term, revelatory particularity? Well, in the 18th century, as textual criticism of the Bible and historical understanding of the ancient Near East became more advanced, some people began to realize what the Book of Mormon itself clearly sets out, that the Bible was composed and translated over long periods of time by many hands, and that it was substantially transformed as a result. This view posed a real challenge to any naive notion of the Bible as seamless word of God. It became clearer and clearer that particular people at particular times and places, for particular reasons, had written down ancient stories in the particular manner that they did. So the question was, what happens to the status of divine revelation when it is itself revealed to issue from historically and culturally particular circumstances that inevitably produced Blind spots. For some, this realization became the basis for rejecting the Bible as a source of theological authority. If the Bible, the argument went, had the fingerprints of particular individuals and cultural groups all over it, then it seemed problematic to make it the first and last word about a God who ostensibly created and loved all people. So some of these people touted what they called natural rather than revealed religion. Uh, as the basis of a sound faith. The better source of information about God's character was the book of nature rather than uh, a specific book of scripture, right? It was in the universal workings of the natural, uh, of natural law uh, rather than the particular commandments of one cultural group that one could get the best sense about who God was and what he expected of his creatures. 
By Joseph Smith's time, as I suggested before, many American Protestants tended to evade this problem of revelatory particularity by suggesting that the words of the Bible were the literal word of God, applicable at all times and places, and accessible in its universal meaning to any right-minded person. These folks thus sort of papered over the cracks that the textual critics of the Bible had noticed beneath the slick surface created by that remarkable third-person narrative voice of the Bible that I described a moment ago. So they sort of, uh, the sort of American Protestant sort of uh, choice was to sort of happily succumb to the power of that, of that narrative voice. So the Book of Mormon comes on to this scene of struggle with the problem of revelatory particularity. And what does it do? It not only confronts the problem of revelatory particularity, it fairly rubs the reader's nose in it, right? Uh, it gives us a series of first-person prophet narrators uh, who, on the one hand, self-consciously apologize for their faults, right? That is, admit their human fallibility, and on the other, maintain, nonetheless, their divine inspiration, right? So how are we to approach such a scripture, right? And how does this scripture, which we as Mormons are often fond of saying is written for our, uniquely written for our day, right? Instruct us uh, as Latter-day Saints to interact with scripture in general. So the first thing to say is that the Book of Mormon discourages us from reading it and any other text as the literal word of God in the way that some American Protestants came to read and still read the Bible. So, for instance, the book of 1 Nephi, it is impressed upon us as readers, it is not written by God, but very much by Nephi, right, who reminds us at every turn that the words we are reading are his words, as inscribed by his own hands, on, uh, on plates he himself made. So by foregrounding rather than downplaying the extent to which particular human beings mediate the transmission of the divine word by going so far as to emphasize that the text contains the mistakes of men, as Mormon puts it, the Book of Mormon asks us to read it and other scriptures with critical discernment. I think this is, this is uh, one of the claims I want to make. Uh, that is to say, the, the Book of Mormon itself suggests that we cannot take it or any other text, scriptural or otherwise, purely at face value as God's own truth as it were. The Book of Mormon underscores for us that we are reading, that, that what we are reading when we read scripture is the word of God given unto his servants in their weakness after the manner of their language, to borrow the terms of Doctrine and Covenants 124. So what does this mean for how we think about scripture? Uh, does such a view necessarily lessen the authority of scripture? Is it inherently irreligious to uh, read scripture as partial? Right? In both senses of that word, as incomplete and biased, I hasten to add, uh, uh, no, I hasten to say, right? It does, does not mean that, right? And in fact, the very, the very fact that we might ask those questions, I think, is entirely a function of the fact that of sort of the, the dominance of the, evan the evangelical hermeneutic in the United States, and what that the situation that's created is that the the uh, what it means to read a text religiously is to read it literally. Those things have been sort of coupled together, and hence, if one is not reading literally, then then one must be reading skeptically or in a from a sort of secularist standpoint. That is a burden that we do not have to bear as Mormons, right? And I'm suggesting that our own scripture, after you know. 
from which, you know, the name by which we're still most known in the world, right, is built in such a way as to underscore this point, right? Like, this is not what it means to read scripture. This is not the only way of reading, uh, uh, of reading a text religiously or devotion, devotionally. A literalist, deferential, entirely deferential reading of scripture is not the only way to read scripture devotionally. Uh, the most profound meanings, by definition, may not lie right at the surface in what the words themselves explicitly state. If scripture, as the Book of Mormon suggests, cannot be treated as a well of truth undefiled, as the literal word of God, unmediated by particular fallible human beings, that does not mean it does not have saving truths to teach us. It simply means that our means of accessing those truths may not always be as straightforward or simple as we might want them to be. It means that rather than treat scripture as a repository of timeless truths just waiting there, right on the page, to be picked up, we might instead need to treat scripture as a wrestling partner uh, with whom and against whom uh, we grapple and so develop our spiritual strength. So searching the scriptures may not simply mean devising an elaborate system of cross-referencing that hap happily harmonizes uh, the standard, standard works as though they were but a single self-reinforcing text, uh, as I tended to think uh, at one point in my life, but rather engaging the revelations to particular human beings the scriptures contain with our own and others' revelations as particular human beings. The scriptures may not be meant to supply us with the easy certainties we crave as so-called natural men and women, so much as to push us toward hard spiritual self-discovery. So another way of putting this, if you heard the language of depth creeping back into what I just had to say, is, uh, and to, to return to the terms that I introduced to you, is that a surface reading of the Book of Mormon paradoxically shows the text to be asking us to read it symptomatically. Right? So let me explain. By so flamboyantly foregrounding the particularity and fallibility of, the, of its narrative voices, the Book of Mormon authorizes us to query the reliability of those voices and to the extent we regard it as scripture, as I'm sure many people in this room do, to expect that spiritual insights, indeed perhaps the text's most fundamental spiritual insights, await us on the other side of that interrogation of the text. So reading with the Book of Mormon, it turns out, may lead us to read somewhat against its Nephite narrators. The most obvious opening for this kind of reading is the text's vexed racial politics, uh, as my friend and colleague Liz Fenton has put it. Right? So having indicated how Nephi never allows us as readers to forget for a moment that he's the one writing the words we are reading in First and Second Nephi, what are the implications of this narrative fact for how Nephi and his descendants describe Laman and Lemuel and their descendants. So this is how I got, in my article, The Book of Mormon is Amerindian Apocalypse, to my claim for the Book of Mormon as implying something like a liberation theology for the indigenous peoples of the Americas. And I'm happy to speak at greater length about the general claims and local interpretations of that piece, if you have those questions. But let me here just bring a couple of passages together just to capture the, the, the key points. The pronouncement of the, the racializing curse on the Lamanites in 2 Nephi chapter 5 is really interesting in its rhetorical and its narratological context. 
So let's just walk through it really quickly, right? And I'm even going to do this with somehow with two hands. So just think about this, right? So at the beginning of, uh, so it's in 2 Nephi 5 that the, the curse of the Lamanites, at the end of that chapter, that that gets um, pronounced. If we go back a chapter to 2 Nephi 4, we get the narration of Lehi's death, right? So Lehi dies after having sort of delivered his final words and blessings to his, uh, to his children. Nephi and Laman and Lemuel fall out, right, uh, yet again, right, in the immediate aftermath of this. And uh, we're told, interestingly, in 2 Nephi chapter 4, that, as we are at many different points, that many of the things that uh, sort of go down at this point are written upon mine other plates, right? For, uh, uh, for a more, part, more history part are written upon mine other plates, right? So it's one of many places where Nephi is sort of beating that sort of dead horse of small plates versus large plates, right? And, he's, and, and, he's, and in doing that, right, and uh, he's revealing, right, um, indirectly that in some sense we're not getting the whole story, right? What we're reading is funneled through him and through a very particular sort of agenda that he has in, in, in on the small plates, right? So Lehi dies, the brothers fall out, where it's indicated to us that we're not getting the, the full story here. And then after this, we get this often sort of cited passage. It's called, sometimes called the Psalm of Nephi, right? Oh, wretched man that I am, right? And, uh, and Nephi uh, assumes this posture of sort of penitence and humility. Uh, and Grant Hardy in his, his wonderful book, uh, Understanding the Book of Mormon, right, uh, I think at one point even suggests that maybe this is, you know, the fact that this comes right after Lehi dies and right after he falls out with his, with his brothers, maybe this is Nephi registering, right, that um, contra his usual line in which he just sort of maintains how wicked his brothers are and how righteous he is. Maybe this is his way of registering that, you know, maybe I could have done better. Maybe I could have been a better brother, right? Maybe, you know. So I'll put that in play for a moment, although, as you'll see shortly, I don't think that that reading works. <laughs> then Second uh, Nephi 5, right, starts with Nephi and his team breaking off from the Lehite hole. They um, colonize, they, they, they leave the main group, they go to colonize their own territory, which they call the land of Nephi, and uh, they take upon themselves the name the people of Nephi. And suddenly, there is a sense uh, in the text of my people. Um, he starts using this phrase over and over again, right? So there's plenty of those, those first-person per pronouns, as we've seen in, in Nephi. It's always I, I, my, my, me, me. But now, suddenly, it's my people, and that is now a subset, right, of the group that we started with. There's a sense of an us and them that has now been definitively created. And we get this uh, depiction of these, this people, Nephi's people now, prospering materially and spiritually, right? They're industrious, they uh, have bounteous harvests, they build this beautiful temple from the best materials that they can find. And at the end of this, Nephi is crowned, reluctantly, he says, as king. And then, right after this, comes the pronouncement of the curse on the Lamanites, including a quite disparaging and pointedly contrastive description of them as materially and spiritually impoverished. Nephi follows this up after he's sort of pronouncing the, the curse, or I should say pronouncing the Lord's pronouncement of the curse, right? Because he puts it in the voice of the Lord, right? He follows this up with this little verse uh, in which uh, he says, uh, And it came to pass... 
that we lived after the manner of happiness. Think about that for a moment, right? And just what that implies, right? The depth of the, the, the sort of split between them, right? Because what it means, it suggests that the state of Laman and Lemuel and their kin, who are, of course, or were his kin until the beginning of the chapter, right? No longer factors into Nephi's emotional state, it seems, right? He and his people are prosperous and happy in spite of whatever the Lamanites are doing in their accursedness. That's not going to, you know, uh, that's not going to rain on their parade <laughs> anymore, right? So uh, this then, I think, makes it somewhat difficult to read um, the penitence expressed in the Psalm of Nephi in the chapter before as attaching to his relationship to his brothers, right? Because this follows right on the heels of that. And so the, the proximity of that, I think, is jarring in a, uh, in a way. So this juxtaposition of Lamanite accursedness and Nephite blessedness is followed by the narration of the actual making of the small plates, which we've been reading this whole time, right? So we get the curse, we lived after the manner of happiness, and right after that, at the end of chapter 5, and I, Nephi, had kept the records upon my plates, which I had made of my people thus far, and it came to pass that the Lord God said unto me, Make other plates, and thou shalt engrave in many things upon them which are good in my sight for the prophet of thy, the prophet of thy people. What does this mean, right? It means that everything we've read to this point, right, at the end of chapter 5, right on the heels of the pronouncement of the curse, is revealed at this moment as retrospective, right? Because we've kind of caught up to the point where he actually makes, the, <laughs> he's made the small plates that we've been reading this, this whole time, right? So the internal chronology and the narrative logic suggests that everything we've read to this point is what Nephi sat down and wrote immediately after receiving the command to make the small plates and write on them only the things of God. And admit it, we've all done this in our lives, right? At some point where you were feeling guilty about your bad journal keeping, right? Where you, 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 you get to a point where you go back and you try to reconstruct, you try to cheat, you know, and like write a bunch of things down, right? From, from the past that you should have written down in the moment so they'd be more vivid and they'd be uh, more representative of your emotional state at that moment. That, in effect, is what's happening here, right? That what's revealed here at the end. He gets this command to, to produce the small plates, to write a certain kind of history on them. And so everything we've read to this point is, in effect, that sitting down and sort of um, cramming, right? <laughs> and, 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 and sort of catching us up, you know, catching up the story. So he's catching us up, small plate style, on everything that has happened, preceding his making of the small plates. This is, I think, points only underscored by the fact that what follows after this, starting in chapter 6 of 2 Nephi, is almost entirely discourse rather than narrative, right? Sermons and teachings from Jacob and Nephi, and then Midrash on Isaiah, right? That's the rest of 2 Nephi. There's not really much narrative that follows after that. So that narrative, that the narrative portion of the small, these small plates devoted, we're told, to the things of God ends with that, I think, chilling juxtaposition of Nephite blessedness and Lamanite accursedness. That sense of their mutual otherness to each other, which is marked by a kind of racialized revulsion um, toward each other, I think might be seen as profound and instructive a spiritual and moral lesson as the doctrine of Christ with which Nephi culminates his teachings. That the richest spiritual meaning or meaning as spiritually rich as anything that he has to say 
in the in his his uh, his teaching about the doctrine of Christ might be in built built into these these strange discrepancies of the form. We might have as much to learn from that as we do from anything else. Let me conclude by saying that this sort of reading of the Book of Mormon, I think, is supported by the text itself. And I conclude by drawing your attention to this interesting episode during Christ's visit to the Americas in 3rd Nephi, right? So in chapter 23, Christ asks another Nephi, right, a descendant of the original, to bring all their records for him to peruse. And he immediately notes a glaring absence. Verily I say unto you, I commanded my servant Samuel the Lamanite that he should testify unto this people that at the day that the Father should glorify his name in me, that there were many saints who should arise from the dead and should appear unto many and should minister unto them. And he said unto them, Was it not so? And his disciples answered him and said, Yea, Lord, Samuel did prophesy according to thy words, and they were all fulfilled. And Jesus said unto them, How be it that ye have not written this thing, that many saints did arise and appear unto many and did minister unto them? So how be it indeed that they didn't write this thing, right? Is there laid bare here a reluctance on the part of the Nephite prophet narrators to include in their narrative something they themselves recognize as true prophecy because perhaps it came from a Lamanite who had excoriated the Nephites for their wickedness. What does it mean that the literal voice of God in the text, this is Jesus talking, right? Once he's on the scene, right? Uh, He's arrived. That the literal voice of God in the text singles out for distinction precisely the voice the Nephite narrative does not at least willingly include the prophetic voice of the Lamanite. It seems to me the Book of Mormon here makes a vital distinction between the voice of God and the voices of the Nephite narrators who claim inspiration from God. And implicit in this arrangement is the question of how capable the Nephite narrators are of faithfully transmitting the message of Lamanite exaltation that Jesus himself has just expounded in the previous chapters. Is the scripture, so to speak, in the Book of Mormon not entirely coextensive with the narrative of the Book of Mormon, right? What if we were actually to see that, in a sense, that Scripture is made not entirely by whatever the Nephite narrators tell us, but in these telling sort of, these these moments of sort of self-revelation or exposure in which we actually see the partiality of the narrative. Does spiritual meaning lie there? as well, or just as much as it lies um, elsewhere in the text. Does the Book of Mormon at this point and others unravel the white Nephite narrative in order to reveal a God who has no patience for white supremacism in particular and simplistically taking things at face value in general? This, to me, deep and deeply relevant spiritual truth can be unlocked only if one is willing to accept the invitation that the Book of Mormon itself extends to read it, and by extension, all scripture in an earnestly interrogative spirit. Thank you very much. Well, Jared, you've taken us on quite a journey tonight, and it was one that I wasn't anticipating. So I'm sure that people here have lots of questions for you. Keep your remarks to questions, and I'm going to get you something to drink. Oh, thank you. All right, and who would like to go first? Yeah, please. Yes. Uh, just a correction, if I might, and then yeah. it turn it into a question. Yeah. Uh, into your scholarly uh, elements of research. Yeah. The first Christ appears first in First Nephi, not Second Nephi nine. It's a great chapter, Second Nephi nine. Mm-hmm. But he is first uh, introduced by Nephi in 
in First Nephi. It actually starts with the dream of Lehi, then mm -hmm. Nephi's experience and interpretation where he sees the Son of yeah. God. And then it turns into First Nephi, the 25, where we learn all about Jesus Christ, his baptism. He expands uh -huh. upon uh -huh. why the baptism was necessary uh -huh. very eloquently. But if you look at it from Well, that, just, just to be clear, I was just making the point, the first time the word Christ itself appears is in Second Nephi 9. Uh -huh. So he's not, that, the name is not given until that point. Uh, it's pretty clear who we're talking as a, about. As, a, as, an, uh, as, a, as the Messiah no. sense, the name uh -huh. Jesus is. I don't think so. Well, I'll double check that. You <laughs> yeah, might, yeah, you I, might I have don't said think the so. Son of God, so I'll double check it. Mm -hmm. However, the, the question I have is, do you see a pattern in the learning world of, uh, I'll call it line upon line, or where the Lord introduces, you know, they don't have the brass plates even until they're in the wilderness when Lehi first gets to read them. Mm -hmm. uh, so they don't really have all the writings and the experience of, of the writings of Isaiah and others, which, uh, they, which they quote extensively, mm -hmm. as you mm -hmm. point out. So they, they learn uh, through dreams um, of, of the tree of life, mm -hmm. and then they learn the representation of it. Then they learn more about mm -hmm. Jesus Christ uh, mm -hmm. through, through the prophecies. Then they then we get very specific as and then fast forward to our day as you well pointed out. You know how this applies to our day. But they but, but we kind of go from the uh, line by line up to the point where uh, and if it, and if the word Christ doesn't appear first I'll double check it and mm -hmm. I, know, I know second Nephi nine. But they're building up. So do you see a pattern? Is there you know is there not some kind of a uh, a pattern of, of learning, of conveyance where their own learning and knowledge is being that's it's being conveyed. Yeah, no, it's an interesting question. Um, yeah, I mean, as far I mean, I think you, yeah, you could say, and this gets to in part to the the interesting and kind of fraught relationship between Nephi and Lehi, right? Where you know, there's some sort of some sort of Oedipal anxiety there, in some sense, right? He is very conscious of his father as a prophetic figure, and he is. Um, He's often kind of trying to one-up his father, right? So Lehi has has a vision, and he's like, "I want to, I want to have that vision too." But then his vision is better, right? It's more complete. It's more, you know, there's more information conveyed. And often these little, these little, there's little phrases where he says, "You know, I," he 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 makes it clear that you know, yeah, I I was, you know, I knew the, the I received the learning of my father. I was, but I also received learning from God, right? And there's so there's. There's a kind of thing where I think, yeah, uh, Nephi as a as a character, right? We're talking about him as a as a as a literary sort of um, artifact, right here, right? He comes across as um, uh, as someone who, yeah, who definitely who has a, a hunger for knowledge that seems partly related, right, to a sense of the the inadequacy of his father's knowledge, and he wants more he wants more knowledge, right, than his father than his father has, and he wants to be a prophet in his own right, right? And he's kind of want to come out from under the shadow of of his father, and in that I do think you could make the case there is um, that in that process, yes, the the information becomes thicker, so to speak. We we learn more and more, right? Nephi's visions, right, are always. Um, uh, when you compare, if you go back and compare, like what the vision looks like to Lehi, what he sees, right? What Nephi sees is quite different, right? And of course, he has the help of this angelic preceptor to kind of like explain everything to him, to explain everything to him, right? And um, I'm loud enough, right? I'm a loud person. I think you can probably. So I think you're right. Yeah, there is something in that. The question for me, right, is uh, if you're if we're yeah thinking about 
these sort of questions of narrative structure, right? I don't know that he ever he ever really <laughs> he ever really um, learns his lesson, so to speak, about his about his brothers, right? Or I don't know that he he ever, at least in the text that we have, right? Uh, if he um, if he ever sees them as other than just sort of inimical, right? To you know, to him. And uh, I think there's something interesting, right? And and it's our opportunity as readers, as I've been saying, not to you know, not to condemn Nephi and throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? There's still a lot that can be learned from his teachings about the doctrine of Christ. Those are still valuable, right? But there might also be something to be learned about the doctrine of Christ, right, from this blind spot that he seems to have in relation to his brothers. And this, um, this problem, right, that all of us, you know, if we're being honest, that we live with, right, that um, imperfect people, right, can receive grand revelations, right, and say things that are true and meaningful, right, and that, that people should... Um, that people should hearken to, right? And yet, they're also, um, you know, they're also um, imperfect people, right? Um, and there might be something to be learned from that as well. So that question of, this is why I said what, what, what Joseph Smith does with the Book of Mormon vis-a-vis this problem of revelatory particularity is so interesting, right? Because it wants to, on the one hand, concede entirely human fallibility, right? And as I said, the, the narrators themselves admit to this explicitly many times in the Book of Mormon, right? And yet, on the other hand, to say, but no, but, but, but um, something of revelatory value can still be transmitted, right, through these vessels, right? And so I guess the, the question I'm, what I'm suggesting in a way, right, is that uh, the Book of Mormon, because of how it's fashioned, because of how it's constructed, offers the, a, a reader, I think, this really amazing opportunity to both, you know, derive value from these revelations, right, that come through these prophetic figures, but also in attending to the narrative and its structure, right, to also see them as failing, right, and to learn to learn from that too, right? And of course the whole story is all a story of a big massive failure, right? We can't forget <laughs> we can't forget that that, well, right? There's two hundred uh, years that go well and those skipped <laughs> over in about one page. Well, <laughs> well exa- I know and that's I mean, that, that's exact that's a great example because that that is exactly you know the kind of the kind of reading, right, that I think um, that, that we ought to do, right? Where it's like, what does it mean that, you know, the good times are compressed into a one one chapter, one, you know, one book. Uh, one chapter be, book. Just yeah. <laughs> uh, so there's a, but it's yeah asking those kinds of questions exactly like you know what's the narrative shape right like how much how much attention is devoted to this as opposed to that and what do we learn from the very shape of the narrative the very form of it there's there are lessons in that as well as in what's actually being explicitly stated right by the narrators. Armand. Hi, um, the part that I was interested in and unfortunately received the shortest shrift. <laughs> your comments was the whole issue of racism in the Book of Mormon. Yeah, and uh, I have I have little doubt that the, that Joseph and his disciples, or at least his disciples, uh, read the Book of Mormon in light of the racial notions they had in their time. Yeah. So it was received by them yeah. as a racial document. Yeah. But uh, I think. A, a simple way, a simpler way, maybe, of saying what you were saying toward the end, 
is uh, some, an observation I already made in my 2003 book, which is we must remember that whether we, whether we take literally that the Book of Mormon was, was a historical document, uh -huh. or whether we just think of it as having a, a, a separate editor or voice in the way that Grant does in his other book, mm -hmm. the thing that is important to remember in talking about racism in the Book of Mormon is simply that the Book of Mormon was written by Nephites <laughs> yeah. who get to say anything they want about the Lamanites. Exactly, yeah. And now, what I want to know is, with that basic um, understanding, which I feel sure you share, uh -huh. what I don't understand is why we need all the theorizing you came up with mm -hmm. in order to get to that fairly simple point. Um, for se well, first of all, I quote that observation in my article, actually, oh, okay. <laughs> which is uh, exactly right. I think that we need all the theorizing, first and foremost, because I happen to think it's fun, right, um, to, do, uh, to do, but that, that there are profound implications for that fairly, what seems that fairly simple point, precisely because of what I described earlier as this sort of alliance of religious reading or devotional reading with a certain kind of relationship to scriptural narrative, right? Because I think that what really happens, right, is that that simple observation that you made actually is not so simple for people to, to embrace and fully sort of confront the implications of because of uh, being sort of trained by the dominant surrounding culture in that, that what it means to read scripture, right, is to, is to read it as the literal word of God. And uh, so making, you know, trying to think seriously about what it would mean to, to see these prophet, the, the words of these prophet narrators as being compromised in some way. Right or as being as being biased in some way, right, has pretty profound implications. I think. I think you have to. I think you have to. You have to. You have to work your way through that. Um, and the other the, the other reason to do all the theorizing, as you say, I think, is that the Book of Mormon has this message in the end, right, of the exaltation of the Lamanites in the future, right, and on the title page of the Book of Mormon. That is stated as the first priority of the text. Like this is what it's this is what it's for, right? Is to is to give this remnant of Jacob a sense of their identity and to sort of empower them, right? In a moment when they're in sort of a rough spot, right? And to you know sort of enable them to usher in the New Jerusalem on the on the American continent. And trying to figure out exactly uh, again to sort of confront the full implications of what that means is really important and I think you only get the full the full force of that of what it, what what that would mean if you do this kind of close literary analysis because you have at various points in places like Enos right you have the white Nephite narrators sort of saying like yeah we're going to be we're going to be dead right and uh, but we hope that our record's going to be preserved in order to save our Lamanite brethren in the future. But in those articulations that come from the, from the 
mouths of the Nephite narrators, there's often a kind of paternalism involved, well, sure. right? That's part of and the point, yeah. yeah, well, exactly. But then, so that's why I think reading for this other this other level, for reading for a moment like the one I concluded with, where we get this where we get these, these amazing sort of revelations of a blind spot in the text itself, that, oh, uh-oh, you know, the Nephites haven't been writing down all of Samuel the Lamanite's prophecies. Why haven't they been doing that? It's in moments like that that I think the, tr- the, the full force, the full weight of what the kind of the message of the, of the sort of exaltation of the Lamanites in the future really means, right? It's something that actually... Um, I mean, I call it in the, in, in the essay, right? It's, these are moments of sort of apocalypse of the text itself, right? Where what's revealed in that moment is that um, is the, the incapability of the white Nephite narrators, even though on some intellectual level they've accepted the fact that, you know, they're going down and the Lamanites are going are gonna, are gonna, are, are gonna to be on top in the end. They can't fully sort of articulate that, right? They can't fully countenance it. And in that, in their very inability to do that, as the narrative reveals it, I think is, um, is a measure of the profundity of that message of sort of native resurgence, right? That is very applicable, I think, to us in our moment in which uh, it, seems, it seems impossible, right, to imagine something like decolonization in the United States. And in fact, there's a thing, a real thing, it's a legal doctrine called the impossibility doctrine, right, that Ruth Bader Ginsburg just invoked in a case that the Mohawk Nation brought to the Supreme Court, in which they were claiming on the basis of totally legitimate previous treaties and agreements that they, you know, should have a a specific chunk of land. And in her opinion, you know, Ginsburg says she invokes this thing called the impossibility doctrine, which is basically, yeah, you're right, the treaties are legitimate, but too much time has passed, too much, you know, too the population has moved and concentrated in such ways that it is impossible to fulfill your rightful legal claim. It's getting late, it's nine o'clock, and I know some of you need to go, but there are a number of you that have some questions to ask. Uh, and I'm and, happy to hang around. Yeah, so we'll let, we'll let our speakers stay here, and those of you who want to ask questions can. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Dialogue podcasts in honor of our 50th anniversary jubilee. If you enjoy listening, please consider becoming a subscriber to Dialogue by visiting dialoguejournal.com or supporting us with a donation. Thank you.